You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the NBDA. I am Heather Mason. Thank you for listening. I'm happy you're here. If you're a first-time listener, be sure to check out the previous episodes. Do us a favor. We love those reviews. And this podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry. As always, the MBDA is super thankful for our donors and association members. If you'd like to make a donation to the MBDA, you can do so directly on our webpage. Just this past week, I had a meeting with Teddy from Locally. I have to admit, I had never heard of Locally, but it's a super unique platform. If you have not used it, it's locally.com. You can search any item you are looking for and find it in stock at a retailer near you. If you are a retailer, you can sign up for free. So I think that's really cool. And there's a lot of brands that are learning about Locally and partnering with them. So check it out, locally.com. So today's guest is someone I met, I think the first week that I started with the MBDA, I was doing a lot of outreach, sending letters out to potential members and past members. And today's guest is one of those persons who responded to my letters and was like, hey, Matt Wallen, I'm super pumped to have him here. He is the owner of Round Trip Bike Shop in Casa Grande, Arizona. I went, you know, like I normally do, I go right to a shop's website and I check out what's going on and I was just floored. So outside of running his shop, Matt is one of our uh, unique retailers who is building a community. His community is specifically based around youth. His focus is on managing and building trails. He helps coach the high school cycling team, There's technical clinics, a lot of community outreach. I really feel like his shop is leading the path for this new style of retail. And when I first went to his shop page, I was like, Matt, I need to know more. So without further ado, Matt, what's going on, man? How are you? Hi. Hi. Glad to be here. I am so thankful you are here. I just, we are just catching up. I'm in upstate New York. It's like 60 out. I'm pumped. Matt's like, it's 60 here. (laughs) So he's loving it. I know Matt, like many retailers right now, he, he told me he had a really busy weekend. Tell me about your weekend, Matt. It's just crazy. This fervor for bikes just hasn't ended yet. And it's wonderful, regardless of any negative issues or things that are coming up in the industry with supply chain or whatever else is happening. Shops, uh, we're crushing it. I know that other friends of mine in the industry are crushing it. And I think those of us that are adapting and uh, modifying to this new way of doing retail they're killing it right now. And it's fantastic. Matt, I know you have an awesome community. We're going to get into about that, but are you finding new, new bike shop, like new people coming into your shop? Are there new customers that are looking to get in cycling for the first time? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in a kind of a unique Island where we're at right now. And traditionally we've had just a certain type of customer that came in. We get the snowbirds, right? The folks that come in for the winter and stuff like that. And this is the time of the year when they're here and, and they're real prevalent, but Lately, it's been more families, it's been more uh, kids, adults looking to get fit, people that remembered enjoying cycling when they were younger and uh, looking at getting back into it again. People that used to be really active cyclists that for whatever the reason fell out of it, they're returning to the sport. And it's all walks of life that are coming through the door. And I hear this resonated throughout Arizona. It's a wonderful time to be in business. Right. It's a wonderful time. Yeah. I, Matt, I'm hearing shop owners that are like, oh my God, this weekend, there's like a burnout going on already. Right. 
do you love what you do? Are you smiling all day? Like, are you on the shop just customer to customer bouncing around smiling? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky in that I'm a smaller shop, so I'm a lot of what the shop is. I I get to participate and work with customers direct, and uh, I'm not always in the back office. So that gives me a, a unique perspective that I enjoy. I love working with people and working with them and in the cycling industry. So being able to have all these new faces come in and, and people that are getting back into it and to just share some of the knowledge that I've gained over the years with them and just to have them suck it up is it's fun. I mean, I'm not really an egotistical person, but it is a boost to the ego to be like the local legend for all things cycling. Right. So it's a blast right now. And even when times are tough, finding ways to overcome the challenges and the things that are presented to us in retail, solving those puzzles is, is fun. And I love it. It's, it's a blast to do. I love that. The local legend. It's so true though. Like I look at, you know, like I, I look at some of the programs that you are offering and, and you, you know, told me a little bit about your past in preparation for today's call. And I can totally see local legend and, you know, our listeners can't see you, but I'm looking at your face and you are just, you're shining. Like you can tell that you love cycling and you love the fact that people want to know from you. You're sharing your tips and your, your special sauce. Like you share the products that you like and you tell people what trails to go ride on locally. Don't you? When they come into the store, I'm sure. You know, I, it depends on the person that comes in. Not everyone's looking for local trails. They're looking for a safe park to ride in. Sometimes they're looking for a great epic road route. Some are looking for bike packing. Some are looking for some sort of a contiguous bike path system that we don't actually have here in this town. They're looking for something. My job is to figure out what they want and what their needs are and to tailor my answers to what their needs, what I perceive their needs to be. And so, and that's not always easy. Sometimes they miss, but it's something that it's, I feel like it's a craft that I'm always honing and always trying to make better. And, and sometimes when you hit and you really connect, you just like people in general, we'll talk for 45 minutes to an hour about just different places to ride. And I've lost track of some of that time, you know, and, and especially if it's not too crazy busy and those are moments that you look back on and it's, again, it's really rewarding. It's like the art of actually listening, right? <laughs> like... I don't know what that is, but <laughs> exactly. No, you, you have to listen to your customers. I mean, I think that's kind of rudimentary. If you're telling people what to do and not listening to what they're doing, I think you're missing out on some truly good experiences. Do you have all, you, what's your inventory like? Are you able to fulfill the needs of customers coming in right now? No, not everything. So hard, right? No, but you know what? We're getting it done and I could sit here and cry about it. <laughs> no, no, we're going to, it's happy day. <laughs> Big man cry, right? But no, it's, you just got to be resourceful and you got to just search high and low for those things for customers and I think a lot of what we do is we try to set reasonable expectations. And so as long as we're communicative and we try to be understanding, we really listen to what the customer is telling us that they're after. And, and when we can successfully explain to them what's happening and use that as an educational moment, it takes a little bit longer to do it that way, but the interaction between us and them is better. They're looking to us as their local source. They're looking to us as the expert on what's happening in the industry we're really that only contact and they can read stuff on the internet. They can watch YouTube. They can do all these different things, but you're like the boots to the ground. So when they come to you, they expect you to have answers that will, will help them to know when they're going to get their items or if they can get something that's going to replace it. And so that's, 
that's been probably the greatest challenge of this is trying to figure out where to get product and then how to set those expectations for those customers. Yeah, Matt, I I could not agree with you more. I just earlier before our call, I had a call with uh, Men's Health. They're doing an article about how to help people find a bike right now. And I gave them that same advice. I said, go into your local bike shop and communicate to them what you're looking for. And the bike shop is your expert and they're going to set, you know, some, some groundwork for you on what to expect and um, keep that communication alive. So I totally agree with what you're saying there. That's fantastic advice. And, you know, to retailers connect with suppliers, right? So you have the right information. Sure. Sure. And I don't think the suppliers necessarily always have the right information. And I see sometimes they say things to pacify us. The suppliers, in some instances, could do a better job of setting reasonable expectations to say two months and then two months go by and then it's two more months. I know. That type of thing. I'd much rather be told it's not coming for six years. And so that way I know, okay, I'm not getting that for six years. So I need to find it someplace else or find something to replace that. And so, yeah, communication is a key thing all the way around. Yeah. And like real, as real as possible. Like don't just blow some smoke, right? <laughs> like we need yeah. actual data. Yeah. No, you have to be, yeah, you have to be real. You have to be honest. It's okay to miss dates. It's okay to miss things. So long as you're communicative. All right. So you and I jive on so many levels. We're both mountain bikers. You grew up in Southern California. Like how did you find this sport? Tell me about that. I can't honestly remember exactly what tuned me into it. It might have been a Mountain Dew ad for all I know. It could have been some commercial. It could have been something else. But I was only, I knew distinctly that I was 13 years old when I first decided I wanted to get a mountain bike. I had an uncle at the time and he was just getting into mountain biking, had bought one. And I wanted to buy one like him because I kind of looked up to him a little bit. I figured out a way to, to generate some income. I took people's trash cans to the curb for $5 per month in order to save up the money to be able to buy my first mountain bike. I didn't understand bike shops. I didn't understand that there was this specialty market. I just knew I wanted a mountain bike. And the only place I really knew to get was the department store. That's the only place I had seen it. And I remember my father at the time thinking how ridiculous a mountain bike was. He, he thought that it looked silly. They had those bull moose handlebars on it. And it had, it just didn't look like a bike that he was familiar with. And he thought it was goofy. And why do you want this thing? He would say. And, but I didn't know the heart wants what the heart wants, right? So I uh, saved up my money and bought that first bike. It was a Huffy Cherokee 3. And uh, that was the very first bike I ever bought with my own money. And that started this lifelong passion for bikes. It taught me a lot of lessons on fixing and repairing and because that thing never worked right. So <laughs> so but did it, you did you go out with your uncle? Like, so I think I was like the same age that you were, right? And my father got me into it. And I remember so clearly like Vermont brownie mix rides. And where were you guys riding? Where was the, where yeah, were my, your local trails? My uncle lived in Northern Moore in California. He was two and a half hours away. So we didn't get to spend a lot of time riding. We did some high desert riding up in Palmdale. Some other things like that. But the type of riding he did with his mountain bike and the type of riding I wanted to do weren't necessarily the same. We weren't on the same page on that. And so I was fortunate enough. I grew up in an area called Yorba Linda in Southern California, which it butted right up to Chino Hill State Park. So I got to go out in Chino Hill State Park. I'd ride from my, my front door to Chino Hills. I was there in 15, 20 minutes and I could ride all over the place there. A lot of guys and gals that grew up in my generation, I feel like 
it was a, a childhood of adventure. You know, when you watch the movie ET, that kind of sums up like how a lot of our lives were, right? We're out looking for different things, getting into trouble and being chased by the authorities, right? And um, so that's a lot of what we did. My brothers and I and friends in the neighborhood, we'd organize these packs and we'd go right up in the hills and get chased by the oil company security guards and stop by the, the orange fields where the migrant workers were working and, and we'd eat lunch with them. And it was a crazy time. I look back on it, I think, how is it I didn't get murdered by somebody, but somehow I managed to make it out alive. So here That's I am. passing. <laughs> Random lunches. All right. So did you have like, so I started at a bike shop, like I was riding and I just started wrenching at a shop one day. How did you get, were you, did you find a job, like a part-time job at a shop or? I I didn't figure out that work and fun could be the same thing. Hmm. My dad was a very hard worker and never really relayed the joy of the work that he did to us as kids. And come to find out later in life, he did enjoy his work a lot, but we didn't know it. Right. And so I thought, your work had to, your your job had to be just out of job. So I really didn't put two and two together until I was much older that I could work in an industry that I also want to play in too. So I was a shop rat. I'd go hang out at the shop. We had Village Schwinn and Yorba there. And I'd go there as often as I could escape and get over there. And I would ask to sweep floors. I would ask to do whatever I could for parts or knowledge or both. And they were pretty cool over there. I, I, I got to imagine I was an annoying kid. I probably talked a whole heck of a lot. I probably was always up in their business and underfoot. And yet they still were really nice about it and helped me out when they could. And so I won't ever forget that. You know, that kind of was my intro to the industry, if you will. But so you, besides having an amazing shop right now, you do have a background in the bike industry. Can you give us a little, our listeners, a little taste of your career in the bicycle industry? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, I didn't start in the bike industry until I was actually in my early 20s. I was taking a more corporate path and I was trying to get that big corporate job and trying to do something that was going to make a lot of money and so on and so forth. And I would get burnt out all the time. And so I finally made a decision after quitting my, my, my job, I was working for a company that did those, um, the pictures on faces that they put on t-shirts and stuff like that and set them up in like universal studios and things. And I was working for that company as a general manager for them. And I hated it. It was like a horrible job and it was all about numbers. And in, you think working in amusement parks and things like that, it would be fun, but I wasn't in that phase of things. I was managing people and I just, and they didn't like their job. And it was just this miserable thing. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go work in a bike shop. Mm-hmm. And so I took a huge pay cut and uh, I was going to school at the time. So it made sense to, to be able to do it. I'm single. I've got time. I've got things I could do. And I started working in a shop. So I got my first job in the bicycle industry um, in a shop in Fullerton, California called Fullerton Bicycles. My sales or my manager there, he was uh, Dale Aguas, who is now the uh, general manager for Turn. One thing you learn about the bicycle industry is it's a small family. So anybody that you've made happy or or pleased, they're going to remember you as a good guy down the line or vice versa. If they remember you as a jerk, they'll remember you for that too. And you'll always come into it at some point, right? So true. So Anyway, I worked for the Fullerton store for about six to eight months. And then Dale was moving on or in, in getting a promotion elsewhere. And I think that was maybe where he first started with Turn. I'm not 100% sure about that. You'll have to ask Dale. But they made me the manager of the shop there. And so I didn't have a lot of bicycle retail experience, but I had enough where I had a general knowledge of cycling repair and all that other type of stuff. And we had great mechanics there at the shop. And I had already had some management experience from my previous job. And so it was kind of a natural fit. And so it wasn't long and all of a sudden I'm thrust into management. And I did that for a little bit for them. 
and then ended up going down to the Costa Mesa store where they were shorthanded with sales staff, particularly in like the pro sales category. So I went down there and ended up doing that because they consolidated a bunch of other components within the industry so that basically their offices and their warehouse moved into that Fullerton store because they had a big warehouse and a huge back room for offices. So the need for a manager there was no longer needed, but they didn't want to just throw me under the bus. So they sent me down to Sichuan where I could apply my trade and sell bikes. And then of course, Fullerton had one certain set of customers and it was very the type of customers that you dealt with were more of the family oriented, more, uh, I would say entry level, that type of stuff. And then Costa Mesa went into more of the high end, top of the line stuff. And so I had to completely shift gears with no pun being intended and, <laughs> and, and completely change up how I dealt with people, how I presented. And these were people that were very particular. They were very, I mean, how you crimped their cables. They were very specific on how that got done. Length of certain things. You had to be really, really detail oriented to make them happy. And at the time, I remember being agitated by that Mm -hmm. type of clientele, but I'm really glad that I could work with them because that really kind of set me on a path where I always strived to take and make a difficult customer my friend and to make them really appreciate the work that I do. And if I wasn't getting them happy, then I wasn't doing a good job. And even if I felt like it was extraneous or there was some way that they were being more, they're being too picky. I needed to change my perspective and look at it differently. And and, and that really enhanced, I guess, my game. Anyway, from there, Costa Mesa and, and I were not a great fit. I wanted to be able to ride to work. I couldn't ride from Uberland to Costa Mesa every single day and get this class and everything else I had to do within a reasonable amount of time. And so I got a job offer from White Brothers Racing, which is a motorcycle company that was just diving into suspension upgrades for RockShox, and they were just about to introduce a new fork of their own. And they needed an inside sales rep, and Sounds I had like a sweet gig. <laughs> it was, it was, so it was like it was opening up this whole entire category. But when I got there, White Brothers was not a bicycle company. The owner, Dave White, was a he was a bicycle guy for sure. And we talk a lot about bikes and then go back and forth on different things and different ideas and stuff like that. But the problem is, is they were too good. There was too much demand for their product, too much demand for what people wanted, and they were short on supply. And so while we had good sales and good sell through, and we had this good following, the we couldn't supply people with what people need. It was a little bit of like what we're dealing with now, but just yeah. on that small scale as an individual manufacturer. So when I was there, I got offered a job with Jensen USA, who was just a fledgling company back then. I believe he had just moved from his garage to to his first actual office location. And in fact, I'm not even sure if it was his garage. If I remember correctly, it was actually his bedroom. He ran it out of initially. Mike Cachet, he's the one that, that started that. He had just moved to that first office and we, we needed more sales guys. I knew how to do that. I knew bikes. And I wanted to do a little bit more within the industry than just sell one specific part. I knew I wanted to deal with some high-end stuff and, and go that route. And I couldn't just do that just at a local level. And so Jensen kind of gave me an opportunity to expand to nationally and be able to really hone those skills as far as uh, getting to know customers, adapting to the different kinds of customers that call in. And Jensen was an awesome opportunity to be able to do that. Unfortunately for Jensen, there were some hard times for Jensen at the beginning. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus because like I said, this is a small community, right? So suffice it to say that there were errors and mistakes that were made and not through any one particular person's fault or anything like that. 
just as what happens in business, things don't always work out ideally. Pretty much the entire company got laid off with the exception of the wheel builder and the website guy, which obviously proved to be a great move for Mike. And uh, he's now this versioning company that's definitely one of the top in the industry and was one of the first to market as far as like an e-tailer website. It was awesome to be at the beginnings of all that and see how that all was formed and and how that brought about this, this monster that is Jensen USA today, right? So once that happened to me, I said, you know what? My dad was right. The bicycle industry, I'm not going to make any money here. It's too flaky. It's too many, too many issues, too many problems. I'm not the commander of my own ship. The only way that I'm going to actually be content and satisfied is if I have something of my own. And it just didn't seem possible. I felt like I had more to learn about business. I had more to do in life. I, you know, I was dating a girl at the time that I was looking to marry and I had to make enough money to support us and things of that nature. And back then the bike industry just wasn't in a place that it could get it done for me. So I got out and I went back to retail management and did that for, gosh, probably the next decade and a half or so. I ended up meeting a guy that ran retail costume shops. I'm sure you guys have seen the Spirit Halloween stores. Oh, yes. Yeah. Love those. (laughs) Yeah. So this was similar to that. There's a a store in Southern California uh, out of Lake Forest called Costume Castle. And it was, at the time, it was the biggest retail costume store on the West Coast. There weren't too many stores that were like it. And the owner of that store, Dave Huffman, he was a guy that he flew by the seat of his pants. He, the amount of planning or the amount of preparation or the amount of anything that he did was minimal. He just knew he wanted to be the best. And he never wanted a customer to walk into the store and not find what they were looking for, which meant probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of inventory. And I was, was going to say a lot of skews. <laughs> That's what it means. And back then we didn't even have like an official like POS system. We didn't have, when I first started with him, it was just price tags and just items and spreadsheets and lots of inventory. And it wasn't as refined as what today's retail is, right? I just feel like all of this, your background, you know, from working at the Fullerton store to Jensen, to working for the costume retail company, like all of these different things that your skill sets that you're picking up along the way, like definitely have shaped you to be the retailer that you are, right? Did you know it at the time? Were you like, cataloging all of this? Like I'm sure subconsciously. Well, no, I, you know, I, I didn't really realize it. I, I always knew I was good at sales. I knew I was good at the gift of gab. I knew I could win people over. I could, you know, talk people into things if you will, but I wanted, I, I didn't really realize it would, it would culminate in, in what it is today. And of course, hindsight's always 2020. So you can look back and see how this shaped that and the other shaped this. And you can see how that, that I, I think of that adage. It's sometimes luck, it's better to be lucky than good. And uh, I definitely have taken advantage of that for sure. Uh, I've had a lot of good luck. What does being a member of the NBDA mean? Go to nbda.com to learn about member benefits, programs, and preferred partner discounts. So Matt, I want to talk about, you know, how you decided to take the leap into find your spot and open up your store. You did share with me what, I mean, when I read what I read, what you wrote to me about your, your dad and him passing, it gave me goosebumps. Talk to me about that a little bit. (laughs) Well, I don't want to bring the the mood down or anything like that. It's a a good story, really. You know, my dad was a hardworking guy that always took the safest path. My dad didn't take a lot of risks in life. And, And for us as kids, it provided stability. 
there was a lot of events and, and things that happened just like everybody has in my life and nothing out of the ordinary. I don't think just the regular hardships and trials of life. And my dad always weathered those by just staying straight and true. My dad ended up getting pancreatic cancer and he, and that was in 2002 that he was diagnosed with that. And I really had grown close. I had done some work with him for, he was running a property management company at that time. I really got to understand my dad a little bit better. And it took years and years of me maturing, learning and growing. And I think years of my dad to learn more about me and who I am and for us to finally come together. And it wasn't until that time that we really did. My dad talked about taking more chances in life and that he wished he had taken more risks and that nothing crazy, nothing like, you know, out of the, the realm of what he would consider to be safe, but definitely more risks. He and I had this conversation about that one week before he passed away. He was actually in remission. He was expected to be fine, but just a complication uh, took him from us. But that conversation I had with my dad really resonated with me that he he always played everything safe. And that was kind of my MO. I kind of always just took the safest route. I'm a planner. I overanalyze everything. I don't take a step or I don't cut anything off unless I know where I'm landing. I felt really strongly that I had to do something different if I was going to feel satisfied with my career and frankly, with, with what I was doing with my life. And so my dad's passing was kind of the catalyst for that. He and I had talked about doing a bicycle shop together. That was something he wanted to do in retirement. We had already been looking at different shops in Southern California together, and we just hadn't found that right one. But after he passed, I really doubled my efforts to make that happen. And so that's kind of what led me to, to buy the shop that I'm in today. It is so scary to take risks, right? Like, I feel like I think I'm a risk taker, but I don't know. I mean, it's a controlled risk, I guess. I love my dad. You know, I'm so thankful he's still alive and he's still here for me. And we have our, I feel like the same thing we've come together as I, as I age, I'm 42 now and we're closer than ever. And I can't imagine not having him in my life, but like to hear that, you know, it kind of gave you that extra motivation to make something happen. How long were you looking Matt, for a, a location? Oh my gosh. It took probably two years before I, I kind of found what I was looking for. I had a very definitive set of parameters. Again, even though I'm taking risk and even though there's a lot of unknowns to it, I, I had a business plan and I had, I, I knew what my limitations were. At least I thought I knew what my limitations were. And I thought I, I was looking for something very specific and I didn't want to buy something that was a multi-million dollar monster. Um, I didn't want to buy something that was going to be out of control and I'd be upside down and underwater before I knew it. I wanted something that had potential to grow, but that would grow with me. As I learned and, and, and as I improved the business side of things, I knew that I wanted to have something that I could start out with that had a good solid thing going that I could eke out a living from, but that I could grow into something more. And so, and it also had to be something that had the potential for being involved from a community perspective. So you bought an existing bike shop. Correct. Yep. That's right. Yep. So in the shop that I'm in now, Round Trip Bike Shop, wasn't always called that, but it's a shop that's been in the community here since the late 70s. It's got an amazing history to be able to track back the phone number associated to a bicycle shop from as far back as 1979 is a pretty cool thing to be a part of. I know there's some shops out there that have a really rich history like that in the communities that they serve. And it's awesome to, to have one of those, I guess, in my possession. <laughs> 
So a lot of shop owners, a question we get asked a lot is, can we give information about like an exit plan or exit strategy? How are you finding bike shops to even consider for purchase? Where were you looking? The internet was starting to, you know, really be, uh, it was really prolific with that type of information. I tried a business broker for a short time and that was fruitless. And really the thing that got it done was Bicycle Brain Magazine. Oh yeah. Uh, Great so yeah, so I started and I was already familiar with it from working in the shops. And so, and they had a website and so I just called them the classifieds from there. And that's where I found the ad for, for this shop was, was on brains classifieds. And so I called the owner and I think actually I sent an email first and he wouldn't even talk to me. He was very cagey. <laughs> so he <laughs> went talk to me at all. He, he sent me just, all I got was the non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> he sent that to me and, uh, I had to sign that before he would even address anything else. And I'd already kind of figured out what shop it was just based on the phone number. I mean, I'd already kind of figured some things out before he even had me sign it. But so I signed that NDA and then uh, we went from there. It must be an interesting conversation. You know, we have a, the bike shop owner who's looking to move on to something new and, you know, it's his baby, right? And it's part of the community, as you said, and you're looking to make a shop that's community involved. So how was those initial conversations? You said your business plan involved community. So were you guys equally as excited? Was like, did you know it was a fit from the start? I think that he'd been in it for 16 years and he moved on and, and his forte really was in civil service. I mean, he works for the county now and as such, he does an amazing job in land and open spaces. He does a lot of land access issues and things of that nature and really I think for him, I think he really found his calling as far as what he was supposed to do in that. So by the time I got into the picture, he was pretty well ready to move on. And so as far as what I wanted to do or where I wanted to take it, it wasn't an issue for him so long as he was able to get out scot-free and not have anything fall back on him or anything. And so, you know, he just covered his bases and all that type of stuff. And, you know, we went from there. So I was fortunate I didn't have him hovering over me or, or challenging everything that I wanted to do. I didn't have any of that. So it was really nice. So tell us about the shop. So tell us about the building. Like how big is it? And, you know, tell us how many employees, what brands do you carry? Sure. We're a smaller shop. The shop itself is about 2,000 square feet. We've got four repair bays. I, right now, I've got three employees right now. And we've got a lot of folks that come in and volunteer and help. We have an internship program. We have kids that float in and out of that. This year, that's been a little off because that program was uh, sidelined because of you know everything that's mm-hmm. going on. But the last three years prior, we've been working with the school to help kids where they're looking to get credit for school and things of that nature. And then we also work with a local nonprofit that does some seating for bike techs and things of that nature. This is what I'm so excited about. This is like the the heart of it. Like the com- yeah, the conversations that I have with Quality Bicycle like is how do we get more people into our industry? How do we train bike techs? How do we get more kids on bikes? And I mean, you have you have an internship. You are, you're working with a local school. Your youth cycling program. Give us some background. How did that come around? Well, the current program as it stands is called Youth on Track. It's obviously just local to this area, but it started from the National NICA program. In 2012, they opened up the, they were talking about opening up the Arizona League. I met with Chris Stewart at Interbike and talked with him about what they were planning on doing. And it just sounded like something that was an answer to a lot of things that we, just as cyclists in general and as a shop that we had been talking about. The kids don't get out on bikes enough that they want to sit in front of the video games and that 
I grew up with this sense of adventure and went on all these, had all these cool things that happened. Right. And I feel like these kids are not exposed to any of that. Then for this adventure they get was whatever happened in the video game they're playing. And so we wanted a way to try to engage them and try to bring them in to what our experiences were. And while they're not going to be the same, obviously we can at least replicate some of that, or at least bring some of that into their life. It's certainly a, a different perspective than what they currently have. And uh, the NICA program really had a lot of those answers. It had a really good program. It had a really good, it had really good potential. And so it just seemed like something that was a good fit for us. So after I talked to Chris Stewart at the, at the Interbike Trade Show, I called up Phil Mummy, who is a friend and a customer of mine that I already knew had done some coaching before. And he had had youth programs um, from different churches that he'd worked with. He's a, been a youth pastor and he's used bikes as kind of a vehicle for that effort. Him and his wife are really heavily involved with youth in the community. And so I felt like he was a natural fit because he loves mountain bikes and he's already coached with kids. And so he brought a lot of things to the table that I lacked and that I couldn't still to this day could never replicate what, what him and his wife do. So he said, yeah, well, let's do it. And so he and I went to the first leadership summit it was held at Pivot Cycles. They, they were uh, gracious. It's awesome. They're yeah, great. For the program. Chris Kukalis and his crew. Oh my gosh. I don't know if the, if the Arizona program would exist without Pivot. So I, I got to give a shout out to them solely because they've done such amazing jobs supporting this effort for the kids. But anyway, so we started out our first team. After the Leadership Summit, we started the first team. How many kids were on the first? What was year one? Well, year one was pretty ugly, I got to admit. When you get into a program like that, one of the things that you kind of come out with is you're pumped, right? You're like, oh, man, I've got all these tools. I've got all this stuff that I can use. And I was really, really excited to get out there. And I know Phil was really pumped up and excited. So the very first practice that we had, we had one kid. And we had four coaches, maybe five at the time, but just one kid. And that was it. I remember Phil saying, well, maybe this year we're just not going to have a program. I'm like, hey, we got one kid. That one kid's a program, you know? We have a program. I love that mentality. We've got a program. It's a one kid program, but we've got something. And another friend of ours, he had started another team at that same time down in Sierra Vista. And his team was exploding. His team was like the 30 kids right off the bat, massive parental support. So we had this thing where we're trying really hard not to compare and really hard not to um, go. But anyway, so that one kid, he went from one kid and that kid, he brought a friend in. So then we had two kids. So, Hey, we've just doubled our, our program. Right. And then it, ultimately the season, when we started our first race, by the time that hit, we had four kids and that raced consistently throughout the season. And keep in mind, we had followed the NICA recommended programs for recruitment. We had gone through, we'd gone to all the schools. We really set up in a, a really good way in that the school administration here in Casa Grande really supported our efforts and really let us have a lot of access as far as presenting this to the kids. We did assemblies. We did, well, we set up a booth at lunch. I mean, we had all these crazy things that we, we would try to do, but it never really resulted in a whole lot of kids. But over time, just like anything, if you stick with it, it grows. And yeah. I, the key thing is that for us, we were really passionate about making something happen for this community. We felt like there was a real need for it. And we were determined not to give up. Not that there weren't a lot of low points or there wasn't a lot of arguing or any of that type of stuff about how things should be done. In the end, we came together and we kept fighting to make it happen. And so fast forward a few years later, you know, we had 20, 30 kids 
that were participating in our area. We had went from zero support, no parental support. Kids couldn't afford bikes, couldn't afford anything whatsoever. We bankrolled everything for them. My first and second year in the program, I outlaid more money for the program than I have any subsequent year to that to the point where the program kind of survives on its own, even without me now. And I, sometimes I feel like I'm not even needed, but that's a good place to be in a program that you start, right? Because you don't want the program to be about you. You want the program to have its own life and to have its own pulse, if you will. And so once it got to that point, it was about five years in. I had been the team director. Phil was the, the head coach. And those roles, NICA or the Arizona Cycling League changed what those roles were. And so the team director went from more of a leadership position to more of a facilitatory position. I felt like I had done everything that I could possibly do with the program and that I was running up against a wall with some certain issues. I, I just felt like I couldn't expand it anymore. And it, it was time for some fresh blood and some fresh perspective. So I brought in Brian Hartsfield. He was a coach at the time. He had kids that were on the team, but he had that same fire and that same passion that we had. And we recognized that right off the bat, you know, that even though his kids would, would not necessarily participate or whatever the case may be, he was still there. He was still participatory. He wasn't just there for his kids. He was there for the, the team as a whole. So we brought him in and, and appointed him or asked him. I didn't really appoint him. I asked him if he'd be the team director. He said yes. And I stepped down from that position and went to just a lowly coach and gladly so. And then they've taken it from there to where it is today. And Brian and Phil were able to start a nonprofit, and that nonprofit was Youth on Track. Youth on Track now, it's a seed program, not just for the mountain bike team, but it also seeds one of the largest BMX teams in Arizona. It's a team, Biolab Sciences. They also seed kids from a mechanical perspective, too. That's something that's relatively new for us. That wasn't something that we had necessarily planned to do, but what we found is, is that there's these kids that were passionate about cycling, but they just weren't built to be racers. They want to participate and they want to be a part of this overall thing, right? They want to be part of the family. There just wasn't a good fit for them because they would go in and they would, they would be the guy that comes in last, you know? And we'd always say, well, hey, everyone remembers the first guy and the last guy, you yeah. know? So you're memorable, you know? And, and you just got to, it doesn't matter if you win, did you have fun? But that didn't always resonate with them. But some of the kids they fixed something, that same light kind of came out in them. They now felt useful. They felt like they had some, they were able to use talent and do things, frankly, that some of the other kids just couldn't do or didn't have the patience for or whatever the case may be. So yeah. this made them now more useful and it was terrific. So that's, that's where we're at today for now. It's such a labor of love. And I'm, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, oh my God, dad would be so proud. Number one. And I'm, you know, I have a daughter who's in NICA and last night she had a friend over who was, who used to be in NICA. He's not anymore. He was one of the kids. He just didn't feel really get the racing car, you know, never really did that great. But I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh my God, if there was a program that he's so mechanical, he would have loved that. You know, you totally changed your community. You got this rolling and it's, it's amazing when you but step back and you look at it. Help of the community <laughs> that did it, but it was the, everyone coming together. Yeah, but I can't imagine you coaching and running the program and running the shop. You must have been really, really, really busy. The program Youth on Track. You said there's like an internships. So are those happening at the shop, or are people? Well, you said this past year was different, but. Historically, do you have a work, you say you have four work stands. So are a couple of work stands dedicated to youth at certain times or how does that program work? 
that whole idea, the whole program was just kind of being flushed out. And, and before, right before COVID had hit, it kind of put a kibosh on a lot of what we were talking about, what we wanted to do. But one of the kids that there's been a few kids that have had some mechanical ability, but also it's more than that. They have to be able to work in a shop environment and that type of stuff. And so we'd bring kids in and we let them work in the shop as interns, basically. And some of the kids would qualify for school credit so they could get school credit towards graduation for that end of things. And so working with the school, working with the youth on track program and the shop together, we were able to have some kids come in and work for more than just come in and just learn mechanical skills and things of that nature. They were working towards their high school diploma. They were able to kind of get familiar with that shop environment and see how they fit. And one of my mechanics now, he was part of that whole program. He didn't actually do it through school. He just had that mechanical knack and just working with him just throughout the different races and stuff. He would help set up the pit zone. He would tear it down. Super hardworking kid. And he was, he has this love of bikes. And even though he's not built like a racer, he's built more like I am, right? He loves them and he wants to get after it. And so, so we brought him in and he's wrenching for me now. I hope that we get to have more kids that get to do that same type of opportunity as we grow as a shop or as the need changes in the shop, then I hope to always have like a, a resource to tap into. It's something that we'd already been talking about having more of the mechanical side of things, which would mean more clinics and it would mean more on-site work and things of that nature. And so and that's being developed as we speak. So, so Matt, I was on your website and you have the tech clinics and talks section of your website. And it mentions that you go off site or you can do things at the shop who presents at these talks. Is it you or people on your staff? So it depends on what it is. You know, we put it out there for anybody that wants, if you want me to come to your event and you want me to come and speak, or you want me to come and present, or you just want me to sit in a booth and and have information ready. I'm willing to do that within the community. We've gone to school events. We've had the local RV parks. They have these safety seminars and things of that nature. I've done tech clinics. I've done a myriad of different things within the area just to basically share that knowledge of bikes and to, you know, put us out there. And then when those people come into the shop, they already know a friendly face. They've already met me and they've already talked with me on a, a more intimate basis with just that small group rather than just walking into a shop fresh and not knowing who's who or, or what's the knowledge of the shop, it allows me to kind of spread the gospel of cycling, so to speak, yeah. but also to get to know my community and know what the needs of that community are by actually being out in the community. And so I do it. I've had staff do it. I've had friends that have uh, volunteered to help out and, and do different things. But predominantly right now, it's mostly me. Yeah, your website is just it screams like community involved, ask us, we're here to help, you know, and just putting that out there lets people know. So I also noticed you have a whole page dedicated to e-bikes. How is that going? How are your e-bike sales going? You know, this is something that retailers ask me often, like, should I, what's the best way to start with e-bikes? I mean, you have a whole web page for them. So you know, for us, a couple of years ago, I really doubled down on repair. I felt like that's for the bicycle industry, you know, we're always going to sell bikes. We're always going to sell products and things of that nature. But if you're not up on repairs and the latest trends within those repairs, then you're like the typewriter guy that stays in business while computers were coming in, right? You have to be on top of it. And e-bikes is one of those things. 
every bit of knowledge I could get, every bit of certifications, anything that I could do to not only get access to the parts for the e-bikes, but learn how to work on the e-bikes I did. And that kind of started that whole thing. And that was, gosh, five years ago or so that we started really, really focusing on that aspect of things. And not that we wanted to be an e-bike store necessarily, but I just wanted somebody to come in with their e-bike, which I see as a definitive growth market. I wanted them to be able to come in and know that it was in good hands. I wanted them to feel confident that I knew what I was doing. I didn't want to have them come in and be like, oh, oh, man, we haven't seen a lot of these or anything like that. I didn't want that. I wanted to be like, oh, yeah, I work on these all the time. Yeah, that's easy, you know, and they can throw an error code at me and I know immediately, you know, what that is or something, you know, or, or if I don't know, I at least know the resources to go to get it. And conveying that message to the customer was very important. And that's what kind of led us into e-bike sales. E-bike sales for us, it's been interesting in our market, we're not seeing a whole lot of the sales in terms of units going out the door, but I'm seeing a ton of repair work coming in. And so the fact that we have the page the way that it is, it kind of establishes us as a, a shop that gets it and that understands what e-bikes are about. Yeah. And so we're not necessarily selling the bikes there. We do sell a few here and there, obviously, but it, it's more about establishing yourself as the authority in your area. And for people to go into your site and be like, oh, he's got a whole page dedicated to e-bikes. He must know his stuff. That's paid off in spades for sure. Yeah, I was actually thinking that. I was like, wow, the whole e-bike, they must really be into e-bikes. And it's a great idea. Why not dedicate a whole webpage to it, especially if you have the trained staff and you can handle those repairs coming in. All right. So you have this awesome background. We've dove into it. Thank you for sharing yourself. What is something that has stuck with you along the way? Maybe a good tip that someone gave you at a past job or something that's, you know, you read somewhere. What is something that is like your, your guide? You know, I, I've gotten a lot of different tips, a lot of advice, but probably my best advice came from my previous employer, which was Dave Huffman. He was the owner of Costume Castle. And he had a lot of gems, a lot of phrases that he would say that stick with me today. But two things that he said to me that I, I, I almost apply regularly. One is, you're doing the same thing. The numbers just get bigger. That's one of the first thing he said. And the second thing was, don't take yourself so seriously. If you're not having fun, you're not enjoying what you're doing, look for how you can shake it up and change up what you're doing and find to find joy in what the work that you're engaged in. And even when I, I left, he gave me a picture of a monkey on a bicycle to put on my desk to remind me of that fact, right? Uh, and that stuck with me. Not that you don't get down to work and not that it's not stressful, not that it's not trying at times and not that there's been a lot of blood, sweat and literal tears, right? That have been with me over more than a decade here. But the point is, is we're just like on a bike on the path, wherever you're looking, wherever your focus is, that's where you're going to go. And I can look off into the rocks. I can look off into, in our area, the cactus, right? And that's where I'll end up in. But instead, I focus down the trail and focus on where I want to be. And those little tidbits of information really help get me there. Yeah. It, if we're feeling confident, if we're happy, you know, if we're starting each day, like full of energy, things tend to, or at least in my world, things tend to go a little bit better. But if I start kind of like not feeling it or, you know, grumpy, it's not turning out to be a good day. So that is an amazing tip. <laughs> okay. So you have purchased a bicycle shop that was once owned by someone else. You got into the bicycle industry later in your life. One of the most common questions we see popping up for us in, at the MBDA is those looking to start a bike shop or to buy a bike shop. So any advice that you would give to someone who's trying to or wants to get into our industry? 
That's a tough one. I, I think a lot of people, because I, I get a lot of people that even ask me at the shop that they're, they say, oh, I'm going to start a bike shop. Well, what do I need to do? The kids ask me that all the time, you know, when they're there, they talk about it. And I don't want to be the guy that, that is negative on anyone's dream, right? I think the, the key thing is you have to know yourself first and really know what it is you want out of the business that you're going to start. You got to figure out what type of shop you want to be and figure out, do you have the skill set? Do you have the talent? Do you have the natural abilities required to do that? And, and take a good hard look at yourself and, and figure out, is that indeed something that I can do? And sometimes that's a hard look. Sometimes it's tough for you to focus on yourself that much and realize that you're terrible at something, right? And so what do you got to do to get not terrible? Do you hire somebody else in? Do you go get educated? What do you have to do to make up for what you lack? And I think the key thing, I guess the takeaway from that would be know where your, where your downfalls are, know where you're, where you're short and where you need to be boosted up and then find a way to, to make it happen. Find a way to get that extra help that you need. And more than anything, you hear it all the time. It's almost cliche. You got to be passionate. This is a job that there's a very few group of people have gotten very rich with. For the most part, most of your shops across America, I don't think are living high on the hog. I think that all, most of us are just content to make a living and get out and ride bikes whenever we want. So Yeah, it's, it's something we love, right? Absolutely. What kind of bike do you own these days? What are you riding? What's your bike? Do I, do I have to say just one? <laughs> <laughs> What's the last bike you rode? <laughs> So, I mean, I got a ton of bikes. Oh my gosh. Well, one, one of the things I did was I, I, I have gone out on a mission to buy every bike that I ever wanted when I was younger and couldn't afford it. Something their technology is gone. There's, there's no point in even really riding it other than just this pure nostalgia factor. So I have a collection of those. The bike that I rode last uh, was actually a, a prototype from a local frame builder here in town. I don't know if you follow the Tour Divide or any of that type of stuff, but Binary Bicycles is, we're fortunate to have them here in Casa Grande. Binary had, they sponsor Christopher Seistrup. He's the guy that won Tour Divide last year. So that was the last bike that I rode. I guess I could give a little shout out to Binary, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. How'd it ride? Was it good? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's, uh, I think when it was built, it was built a little bit with me in mind because it's a little overbuilt, but for me, it's fun. It's a blast. I love trying out stuff. I, I like a little bit of being the guinea pig and so and being able to give input to that to that end of things. I love that. So we are working on creating excellent retailers, right? So that is our mission here at the MBDA is to um, inform, encourage, resource, and you know, having people like yourself on to share your story and and how you got into the industry and what you're doing at the shop to connect with your community. When I say a bicycle retailer of excellence, what would that mean to you? You know, I'm giving I, you the hard ones, Matt. It is hard. <laughs> when you put that question in, you know, earlier, and you know, I, I really wanted to think about it, and I came up with all these different answers, and you know, and financial stability, being debt free, blah blah blah. But none of that really resonates with me. And then I was I was thinking about it, and one of the greatest compliments that I've received since I've had the shop came to me just a few weeks ago. And a customer that's been a customer for since the very beginning also works with the city and is very heavily involved in the community as well from a different perspective, but definitely knows the pulse of the community and knows what the community wants, needs, and what they talk about. And he said uh, to me, he said, man, Matt, he's like, you know what? He's like, you and your shop, you are one of the pillars that helped to hold up this community. 
And I was kind of taken aback by that because I like, you know, we don't ever perceive ourselves in any way, shape or form as the pillar. But I thought, man, that is a great thing to hear because that's been my goal is to be something that's essential to this town and essential to my area and the people that I serve and to be something that this community looks to for a resource that helps to bring them joy and happiness. And I think that if you can achieve that and it's something that's always in work, I'm never satisfied. I'm never happy with where I'm at. I always want to be better and do more and improve. And I, but I think if you can get to that point where you are part of that community, I think that you've, re, you've achieved some form of retail excellence for sure. I could not agree with you more. I love that you share that story and I cannot agree with you more because yeah, we think about those words of profitability and inventory turns and all that. But I think being that integral part of your community, everybody, every community needs a solid bike shop that isn't just opening the, turning the open sign on, but actually making a difference in their community. Yeah. Matt, you wrote to me that you have found great joy in sharing the cycling experience with others. And, and that joy is bigger than any other aspect of our industry. And I can tell just by, you know, our conversation, I can see you again. I wish, I wish our listeners could, because you are just smiling, you're glowing and you're tremendous. So thank you for joining. Thank you for sharing your story and, you know, for being an amazing human. I'm, I'm going to have to get out there and we're going to have to take a mountain bike ride. I think. Whenever you're ready, you'll ride me under the table, but uh, <laughs> I'm slow and steady, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> so it's roundtripbikeshop.com roundtripbikeshop.com. If you want to chat with Matt, Matt, can I share your email? Yeah, absolutely. So it's roundtripbikeshop at gmail.com. Or Matt at roundtripbikeshop.com. All right. Matt at roundtripbikeshop.com. So any questions, throw his way. I'm sure he'll get back to you. Matt, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I invite others to connect with me and share your story with our listeners. Lots of love for our industry, lots of love for all the bike shop owners working tirelessly. I know this past weekend was really rough for a lot of you, and thank you for continuing to show up. If you like what we're doing, share this episode with your friends on social media. And thank you for listening. Come back soon. And with this, we go. Peace. Thank you. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Mm-hmm.